Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This month, we bring you a conversation with Dr. Mark Leary, professor and author of this month's text, The Curse of the Self, Self-Awareness, Egotism, and the Quality of Human Life. In this episode, we discuss how the self evolved in human beings, how that separates us from the rest of the animals, and some of its many downsides. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Okay, hello, and uh, welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Um, This month, November, we're reading The Curse of the Self, Self-Awareness, Egotism, and the Quality of Human Life, written by Professor Emeritus, uh, or maybe I'm not pronouncing that right, Emeritus um, of Psychology and and Neuroscience at Duke University, that's Mark Leary. Uh, Mark is a leading expert in social and personality psychology and has published a dozen books and more than 250 articles on the subject and others. So thanks so much for being here, Mark. I appreciate you asking me. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the curse of the self, um, I think we can know, and it's got a black cover, right? So we know there's like a bit of uh, <laughs> bad, bad news in here somewhere. <laughs> um, it starts off with a, a survey of sort of the many ways by which people, uh, maybe researchers have tried to distinguish humans from the other animals and they've discussed souls or, or language, maybe we have and they don't, or intelligence, you know, use of tools, things like that. But it seems like all of those efforts have been unsuccessful, except for perhaps this distinction that you're drawing here in the book, um, which is the existence of a self. So can you talk a little bit about what a, a self is and how that might make us different from some of the other species walking around here? Absolutely. Well, human beings differ from other animals in a number of ways. And so I'm not disputing that, yeah, we have fancier tools and we have more sophisticated language. But it strikes me that if you're looking for the number one distinction between human beings and animals in terms of how they think and how they behave, it comes down to the fact that only human beings can think consciously about themselves in abstract and symbolic ways. We, we can ponder, we can plan, we can evaluate ourselves, we can introspect, we can think about what other people think about us, we can purposely try to control our behavior. And all of those things require the capacity to, to think consciously about yourself and who you are and what you're doing. And that's roughly what, what the self is. It's the mental mechanism, the cognitive ment- mechanism that allows us to be able to focus on and think consciously about ourselves. Now, there are some other species who show some very rudimentary ability to recognize themselves in a mirror or to think about themselves a few moments ahead in their life. Uh, but, But no other species can think about themselves or do think about themselves in the ways that we do. And I think that's what makes us different. If you think about the fact that we are the only species that's not living in the same environment in which it evolved over millions of years. We have created a brand new environment. Well, how did we end up creating civilization and government and education and philosophy philosophy and religion and healthcare and everything that's associated with being human? 
All of that requires this ability to think consciously about ourselves. So it's the hallmark of human beings. So it sounds very important. It's absolutely essential. We would be a mindless animal if we didn't have this capacity. But what the book's about with its black cover is the fact that despite the fact that this is a very important ability that distinguishes us from other animals, it also creates an awful lot of problems for us. Yep. And we'll get into those problems um, shortly. You know, when I was trying to explain the book, at least briefly, to people who haven't thought about what it means to be self-conscious, I think, and you touch on this, it can be hard at first, uh, because people who have never thought about what it's like, what it would be like to not have a self can't really fathom what's so special about that. Um, I know I was trying to describe to my mom, like what it means to have this analog, or as you say in the book, like a theater of the mind where you can forecast yourself into the future, you know, maybe for the purposes of worrying or um, travel time through the past to maybe um, experience some regret, which is just like a mental capacity that seems unlikely to occur in, in like you said, most other species. At least we don't have any evidence. If you look at this, the behavior of other animals, they don't seem to do this the way we do. If they did, they would build their own civilizations and make great scientific discoveries and build technology. All of that requires assessing where we are and where we would like to go and then making changes to do it. And it requires self-awareness. Yeah, it would be, a, I guess, a Planet of the Apes kind of situation. <laughs> I loved that movie when I was a kid, the original one. That, that's great. Yeah, I feel like that's the only uh, movie where having a, a self really allows the animals to make great strides. And like, you know, the, in Dr. Doolittle, for example, I think they're just there for the jokes. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And that's what made the apes on Planet of the Apes be able to do what they did. In, in those early Planet of the Ape movies, they sort of acted like it was language. And yeah, language is important uh, because I remember that little baby chimpanzee saying mama at the end of that one movie. Uh, yeah, language is essential to coordinate the activities among people or among apes, but there's nothing to coordinate if you can't think consciously about who you are and what you want to do. Sure. So some of the parts of the book that I found really, really interesting and, and stuff I'd never read about before was a lot about the evolution of the self. And, you know, maybe evolutionary history um, is hard to feel like 100% certain about just because you know, it's hard to make those kinds of historical experiments, but it seems like there, as you mentioned, the ability to build civilization, there are some advantages associated or many, you know, if not, you know, hundreds of advantages um, associated with having a self. A few of them you mentioned early on are planning, um, self-control, um, you know, being goal oriented. So what were some of the early forces or, or some of the early benefits that you and other researchers believe um, the self evolved to take care of. And you're absolutely right. I mean, any evolutionary analysis is a little bit of storytelling, trying to come up with a plausible set of explanations for why any animal developed whatever characteristics it has. And that's what evolutionary biologists do, of course, is explain how the giraffe got its long neck or why hummingbirds are the way they are. So it is, it is a question, where did we get this ability from? Now, as I said, there are some species today that seem to have self-recognition. There's some evidence that chimpanzees, for example, can look at least a few minutes ahead as they're going to a termite mound to dig termites out. They'll pick up a sharp stick along the way. Well, that suggests they can reflect in advance 
I'm going to need this stick in a little while. So presumably, other species had some rudimentary self-awareness, including the species that we evolved from. Exactly when we developed this ability, uh, we, we don't know for sure. The clearest evidence pops up in the, in the archaeological record relatively recently, in the last 40 to 60,000 years. Did our ancestors, our early human ancestors, leave behind things that clearly show that they could think about themselves? They start, you know, you start finding bodily adornments, for example, beads and necklaces and breastplates. Well, that shows they can think about the fact that other people perceive them in a certain way. And if I wear a necklace with bear claws on it, that can show how brave and, and strong I am. You don't start seeing those things till about 60,000 years ago, which is really pretty recent in the, in the story of human evolution. We don't know why it evolved, what brain changes were involved, but clearly there was a benefit to be able to start thinking further and further ahead to consciously conceptualize yourself, think about who you were and what you wanted to accomplish and to make plans and to avoid threats that were going to be down the road a few days. And somehow or another that, you know, the, uh, the individuals who could do that survived and reproduced at a higher rate. And now we're the, we're the descendants of some of those early humans and pre-humans who had this capacity to think about themselves. We don't really know much more about it than that in terms of how it happened, but it clearly did happen. Our ancient ancestors, were just intelligent apes. They were not human. They couldn't think about themselves. Somewhere along the way, we developed that capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, despite the fact that it's hard to get to 100% certainty on any of that, it's really some of the most interesting stuff because uh, at least what you pose in the book, that there might have been a, a time in you know human history or hominid history in which some proportion or fraction of the people had some self-consciousness, but others didn't. Like, that strikes me as like a particularly interesting plot, you know, for a movie. Like, would they have become <laughs> slaves to the people who were self-conscious? Like, it, it seems like an amazing time to be alive. Yeah, there would have been a transition point. Now, remember that it is really so gradual. I mean, just like there would have been, think about people walking upright on two legs, given that our ancestors moved more like gorillas and chimpanzees on their knuckles or bent over. Yeah, as evolution occurred, there were transitional periods, presumably, where some individuals showed the characteristic more than others did. Uh, you probably didn't have a time in which there were individuals who had no self-awareness at all, and others were with full-blown self-awareness the way we have it today. Um, but yes, there would have been transition periods like that, and they are interesting. I also think an evolutionary analysis is useful because it helps to explain why the self is a curse to us today. I mean, that's part of the curse story. If this was such a nice evolutionary adapt adaptation, why does it create problems? Why does it create misery as we lie awake at night thinking about ourselves and we can't sleep or we take things too seriously or we get defensive? All of the things that come out of self-thought. Why did it go bad? And part of the story there is that we now live in circumstances that are so vastly different than the conditions under which the capacity for self-awareness first evolved, that it doesn't always work. There's a lot of things in our lives uh, that evolved for a very good reason and worked very well out there on the plains of Africa for six million years, but they don't work as well today, like having a sweet tooth. Having a sweet tooth through the course of human evolution was a great thing. When you found sweet things like fruits, eat as much as you can. You don't know when you're going to get them again. But now with the uh, convenience store just around the corner, that's not such a good thing. 
The self is like that. Uh, we, we can talk more about that as we go, but many of the problems created by self-awareness today would not have been problems if we were living out in clans in prehistoric times. Yeah, I want to get a, a sense because that I want to get a sense of the time scale here. So, um, the the hominid or human or or what may have you that existed before the self uh, evolved, so before forty or fifty thousand years ago, um, that that was sort of a stable. I mean, I'm sure evolution was occurring, but our human or hominid history, as you said, it goes back. I mean, what is it? Five, ten? I mean, how long have what, how long was that period and how long ago was it that we were living in clans, pre-self-conscious, sort of nomadic, hunter-gatherer types? If you go back and ask the question, where did the lineage that led to modern human beings like us split off from the lineage that led to our most, our closest ancestors today, the chimpanzees and bonobos, that split we shared some common ancestor species with modern chimpanzees and bonobos back somewhere around six and a half to seven million years ago. So that's sort of the point at which most evolutionary biologists say this was the beginning of the uniquely human line six, six to seven million years ago. Now, during that six to seven million years, there were many different species and there were many different branches and, and they became increasingly human-like and some of them died out and some of them didn't. You don't find biologically modern human beings, at least looking at skeletal evidence. People disagree about this, but somewhere between 120 and 200,000 years ago. So we go back six or seven million years since we split off from the lineage that led to chimpanzees. But it's only been in the last 100 to 200,000 years that we became biologically human. And again, it, it would have been very gradual. There would have been multiple species of these human-like, you know, they're clearly something beyond a, an ape, but human-like species. Uh, there would have been more than one at the time, even at the time of uh, the early human beings. Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals were there, and they, they were very human-like. They had a lot more human characteristics that we give them credit for. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to answer the question. It, it, it never... You know, it's never been really stable. I mean, evolution occurs very gradually and continues as long as there are evolutionary pressures for the organism to develop in a particular way. Sure. So how long, sure. how long did we live without a self in groups? Um, well, in some ways, probably six million years. Yeah, that, and that is my fundamental question because it's, I mean, it's as you get to in the book, it truly is a sort of mismatch, right? So we lived we in air quotes, so to speak, for 7 million years, pre-self-consciousness. And then, you know, 40 or 50,000 years ago, we developed this self and then civilization just completely changes the way in which we live our lives. I mean, I'm talking to you through the internet right now, yes. <laughs> so, you know, case yeah. in point. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, the, and it's through the internet and we can't see each other as we're talking just, you know, through audio at this point. And for 6 million years, our, our, ancestors didn't communicate that way. Everybody you communicated with was right there in front of you and you could see them and you could talk to them and you could hit them with things. Uh, you and I can't do that. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's really, it's truly um, such a staggering difference, at least in, in terms of time. Um, so, so there, there is a hypothesis and we don't have to dwell too much in the evolutionary stuff, but I find it pretty interesting 
But uh, there's a hypothesis that as we discovered agriculture or became more sedentary, as you write in the book, it seemed more useful. If we're telling these stories about evolution, it seemed more useful to be able to plan, you know, to sow the crop and plow the field. Whereas before it was more of a, just a day-to-day living, um, sort of very short-term goals, uh, really like instant gratification as opposed to, you know, planning out for an entire season of, of crops. So maybe that's when um, self-consciousness really found itself to be adaptive. I think you've captured that very well. And that's when probably self-consciousness became adaptive. Because as you said, when we were just wandering around the African savannah, we were nomadic for millions of years. We didn't own property. We didn't have houses. Uh, We couldn't plan more than a day or so ahead. We just moved around looking for food, trying not to get eaten. And that was that was a successful life. That was it. We didn't plan for educational degrees and jobs and promotions and retirement and, and that sort of thing. But with agriculture, now we settled down. We not only needed to plan to plant the crops and take care of the crops, but we settled down and we got barns and farms and animals and we had to begin to protect what we got. And the big change is when we were living out there on the African savanna for millions of years, in, in, on any given day, we knew how well we were doing in life. Maybe it was a good day. Maybe it was a bad day. Maybe we found food. Maybe we didn't. But every day we knew whether we were meeting our needs or not. When we got to agriculture, you don't have that certainty. You, you can spend an entire growing season doing everything just right. And then your crops are destroyed by a insect swarm or a fire or a marauding band. And, and you're out of food and you're going to starve this winter. So once we moved to agriculture, life became very uncertain. And that's, I think, the beginnings of when self-awareness began to become a curse. Because you now begin to worry about, how are my crops going to do? Somebody going to steal them? Uh, oh, I've got property now. I've got to worry nobody comes and steals my property. Oh, I need more property. Oh, I've got too many goats. I need to get some more land. And we began to plan and build a life that was focused on the long term. What we were doing on a given day when we became farmers in agriculture wasn't all that important that day. It was in the service of making sure the crops grew and we accumulated possessions and food. So we were working for the future. That was completely different than when we were on the African savannah walking around as hunters and gatherers and scavengers. And and that is where worry set in. I mean, one of the big curses of self-awareness is anxiety, which is very, of course, relevant to your to your podcast. Where does it come from? We're sitting here worrying about what's going to happen later today or tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. And and we can't help it. That started with the agricultural revolution. And if you think about our lives today, they are so focused on the future. We're not, we're not just living for today and we can't, I'm not saying we should go back and just wander around and collect food all day. We are in a situation where life, The life we live every day is mainly focused on improving our conditions for the future. Why are we doing our jobs? Oh, we need money for the future. Why are we going to school and getting an education? Well, that's really for the future. It's not because my students want to sit in college classes for four years. No, they're planning for the future. You're planning for retirement. Um, So we live in a very, what's called a delayed return environment, where we put a lot of effort in for things that we look forward to in the future without any certainty that are ever going to happen. And, and that's really the source of so many people's anxiety, all of us. That's what we lie awake at night thinking about. Sure. Yeah, I know it well. And, and I think that's, yeah, one of the reasons why we're talking about this book today. 
Um, I guess for those farmers, a certain amount of worry was adaptive, right? They could think about building taller fences to keep out the marauders or the wolves who might, you know, eat their cattle or, or other stock, farm stock. But I guess in, in us, in the modern life, in some ways, or in many ways, probably the majority of ways it's outlived its usefulness. Um, you write in the book that like worry is useful when it's restricted to a subset of things that you have control over and that are likely to occur. But in large part, most of our worries are about things that have probably never happened and probably are out of our control. Yeah, that's that's very well said. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with anxiety. Anxiety is there to tell you that some threat may be ahead and you ought to take action. The problem is we worry about things that we can't take action. We even worry about things where we do take action, but we're, we're not sure it's going to work out okay. Or even when we think it probably will work out okay, there's always that little voice in the back of our head who says, yeah, but maybe maybe all hell's going to break loose. Maybe it's not going to work out okay. So I, I, nobody should ever think that there's anything wrong with fear or anxiety. There's another evolutionary adaptation. It's there to warn us of potential threats and motivate us to take action. The problem is we can't turn it off when it's not useful. It's like having a smoke alarm that once you put the fire out, the alarm doesn't go off. It keeps on coming on randomly just in case there might be smoke. It just, and, that, and that's, I mean, for all of us, every single person battles with that, some more than others, but that's just part of the human condition. And again, it comes back to self-awareness, lying there thinking about it. Even though I had a great day today, everything's going fine. Maybe this bad thing's going to happen tomorrow that I'm worried about. Yeah. So this is sort of outside of the scope of the book, but given how long it takes evolution to sort of do its thing, uh, to anthropomorphize it, um, and, and maybe there are no um, compelling evolutionary pressures that would make it adaptive to have slightly less neurotic people. Is there any hope for human beings um, <laughs> to diminish the self outside of the suggestions that you make at the end of the book? Well, the, the question from an evolutionary standpoint is what are the, the reprodu reproductive consequences of, of a particular behavior? Is there any evidence that more anxious people are either more or less likely to survive and reproduce than, than less anxious people. Now, in some ways, it feeds on itself because I suspect that more cautious people probably are more likely to survive. You do less foolish things that jeopardize your safety if you're more worried about the consequences of it. So it could be, I mean, evolution doesn't care if we're happy. I mean, it just, it's an impersonal force and it's going, it, all it cares about is propagating our genes. And so anything that makes us more likely to have offspring is going to become part of the human genetic blueprint. I, I don't, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but my sense is that the evolutionary pressures acting upon us at this time are probably not doing anything particularly relevant to how often we experience anxiety. It's not, I mean, it just, our, our reproductive capabilities are not that tied to how anxious we may or may not be. Sure. Yeah. Bad news for those anxious listeners out there who are, <laughs> thought they were turning into Genghis Khan by worrying so much. Yeah. Yeah. They need to come back in 200,000 years and see how it turned out. <laughs> sure. So there's some other problems with the self, some kind of acute problems that, that make the news sometimes that you were discussing in the book. And that's the case of people um, sort of leaving their toddlers in, in hot cars um, and forgetting about them for, you know, while they go into the grocery store, maybe while they're at work. And, you know, in these stories that are like horrifying, we think, well, 
gosh, these parents really must be terrible people. But um, you find the culprit there not to be something, you know, unique to their character, but maybe just the fact that they have a self. Exactly. I mean, all of us get distracted in our own minds by our self preoccupations. We're replaying the, th the fight we just had with our partner, or we're worried about the thing at work tomorrow. And when we get distracted, well, we obviously don't pay attention to things we need to pay attention to. So, I mean, that's just one example. You know, yeah, how does a parent forget a child all day long in a hot car? Particularly, I mean, a lot of these parents are highly respected, well-adjusted people. They're, you know, they're, they're just like all of us. Well, and, and the best answer is they were preoccupied. They were running stories in their head. They were talking to themselves. They were preoccupied by something that was a pressing concern, I'm sure, but it distracted them from what they really needed to do. And, and we all do that, luckily, with less serious consequences. I mean, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners have sometimes been leaving work and thinking, well, today on the way home, I need to stop by this particular store and get this particular thing. And all of a sudden, they're pulling up in their driveway <laughs> thinking, oh, I forgot to go to the store. Well, what happened there? You got preoccupied by something else. So yes, um, all of the talk in our heads, all of our self-reflections distract us from things we often need to be paying attention to. And some people have argued it almost interferes with your experience of real life. You're, you've lost contact with real life as it's unfolding in front of you in the course of your everyday experience because you're living too much in your head. Um, again, that's that sounds pathological, and it is, but it's also perfectly natural and human, and all of us do it. It's just not good for us or the people around us, but we're just thinking too much about ourselves. Yeah. I think it's pretty impressive just from a, I don't know, maybe like an anatomical point of view that we have a brain in our heads that can almost imperceptibly toggle between you know, detecting the stimulus of the outside world and having internal conversations. Like it's incredible that it can slide back and forth in between those two worlds so seamlessly that a lot of us, especially if you've maybe never meditated before or never thought about this problem, you, you would never know that there really was two distinct universes that you're constantly occupying um, instead of just kind of one, one place that you're always in. That is really wonderfully well described, the way you've described that there. Yes, because we can focus on ourselves and talk to ourselves in our own heads and ponder our concerns and our worries and our feelings and introspect and our goals and all of this stuff happening completely inside, oblivious to the external environment. Or we can be focused on our external environment and be watching an engrossing movie or being paying attention to driving a car in a snowstorm or talking to people. And, and we're just going back and forth all day long between those two things. They're both essential. You can't focus on, you can't function on automatic pilot all of the time without thinking about yourself, although we're very good at doing things on automatic pilot. And you can't just sit and, and sort of navel gaze and think about yourself all of the time. You have to pay attention to your world. And we just go back and forth and back and forth all of the time. So an interesting way to think about the curse of the self is that we're just simply somewhat imbalanced in the amount of time we devote to ourselves in our own heads relative to the attention that we devote to our environment. But you're right, it's amazing. I mean, it's really two completely different cognitive processes back and forth and back and forth, as you say, seamlessly all day long. Yeah, yeah, that's always struck, struck me as, well, not always, but only since I became a meditator and was able to sometimes detect, detect the slide, you know, in and out, in and out as you wake up. Absolutely. You know. Yes.
yeah, that, that, that is, yeah, that, that's when it really dawned on me too, as well, is when I started meditating, I re really realized how much time I spent in my own head. And in fact, meditation is part of the story about why I wrote this book. Uh, I mean, in, in my career as a social psychologist, I, I'd been interested in self-awareness and self-concept and self-esteem and just all of the consequences of thinking about yourself and been studying them, you know, the way psychologists do research on such topics. But then in the mid nineties, um, I was, you know, middle of my career, two young kids at home, too much to do, just life is kind of going crazy. And, and I'm like lots of people, I was pretty stressed out. I just saw a little sign for a meditation group at a local wellness center. So I signed up and went. And the first couple of times I went, I really wondered if I was going insane because as I sat there and tried to meditate for the first time in my life, I realized that my self thoughts were out of control. And I started thinking, does everybody have this crap going on in their heads all the time? Or is this just me? Well, and as I started reading more about it and thinking about it, well, I realized, no, this is part of the human condition. But that, 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 that experience coupled with my interest in self-reflection is what made me realize how much I was undermining the quality of my own life through these normal human habits of excessive self-preoccupation and self-reflection. And, and so over a period of four or five years, I decided that psychologists have not addressed this enough. In fact, psychologists have kind of glorified the self that you need to think about yourself a lot and figure yourself, figure yourself out. And there was even research suggesting if you weren't self-aware, most of the time you would do bad behaviors because self-awareness is what keeps you on the, on the straight and narrow. So they glorified the self, have a strong identity, think about yourself a lot. And I realized, well, that's only part of the picture. There's a big downside to these processes. And that's what I started working on studying and then ended up writing the book on the curse of the self. Um, I mean, Realistically, I mean, the name of the book, the title of the book should have been something like the, the blessing and curse of the self or the so-so mm. self or the double-edged sword of the self or something, but that just, that didn't sound as good. So I went with the curse of the self, but I always do want to stress that, you know, there's nothing wrong with the self. It's, exce it's exceptionally important. We just have lost control of it in our modern environment. And, and I learned that through going to meditation, which I've stuck with off and on for 25 years now. Um, because I realized that was necessary for me to roll back this curse of the self. But it, it, you're a meditator. You know that you can't roll it all the way back. It's just it, this self just keeps going on and on. But you, I feel like I rolled it back maybe 15 percent. You know, Dan Harris has that, you know, mm -hmm. 15, 15 percent, uh, that 10 percent happier, you know, book about meditation. I don't know if, I, if meditation made me 10 percent happier. I think it made me 15 percent less unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was creating my own misery through all this self-talk. Sure. Yeah, I have a meditation teacher who's actually been on the podcast before, and she said, because you know, meditation is you know a core part of her life as an instructor, and she sat all these really long retreats that it's made her a lot more than ten percent happier. Um, but obviously, she's devoted probably you know thousands, if not tens of thousands, of hours to it. So I appreciate the fact that, you know, a more balanced title and maybe like a, a lighter shade of black might have told a truer <laughs> story about the, the self. But to the but to the credit of the story that we're telling today, the upside part or the solution part is only, a I think, the last chapter. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit because we've been 
circling around it, methods for quieting the self. Uh, obviously, meditation is one that we have brought up here today, but there's a few others in here about self-control and also about maybe being skeptical of your own um, kind of ego. If, 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 and that's another term we should define if that is something that is separate from the self. Yeah, the term ego should probably be abolished <laughs> from, from any sensible conversation of these things because somebody was able to find there was like 17 different definitions of the word ego in Western literature and science. Um, yeah, so the number one thing that I recommend if people feel like their mind is running away with them is meditation, whatever approach that takes. And I know I was skeptical. I mean, I had this view that meditation was sort of a weird thing, but it's not. It's just a cognitive skill. It's a very secular cognitive skill. People apply it in spiritual and religious contexts, and that's great. Uh, but it's just a way to try to get a little control over this mechanism that thinks too much about you. So that, that's the first thing. But in the book, I talk about other problems of self-awareness and the fact that certain kinds of self-thoughts create other kinds of problems for us. And one of those is that most of us are more certain of ourselves and our beliefs and our attitudes than we probably should be. That our views of the world are biased through our own self-perceptions and our own goals and our own upbringing. But every one of us thinks that we have a view of reality, that we're seeing the world as real and, and we're not. None of us have a true perception of the world. It's, it's like we're all deluded in various ways that we don't recognize. There's nothing we can do about that. There's, it's not a bad thing. It's just the fact that we have filters that we've developed because of our self-concept and our experience, the way we were raised, through which we interpret everything that happens to us. But what it does mean is that we're each probably overly certain that our views of the world are more correct than other people's. And there's research on this. We are more certain that we are right about things than we should be. And you know, as I've often told my students, wouldn't it be really odd if you were the one that was right all the time <laughs> when you have mm -hmm. disagreements with other people? I did a study once where I asked people, I, I told them to think of all of the disagreements that they have with other people. Minor disagreements, major disagreements. Just think of all the disagreements you have. Now, a lot of times, sometimes you, you know who was right or wrong in a disagreement. We can Google it and find out, yes, Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809. Okay, I was wrong about that. But a lot of times we don't know who was right and who's wrong. So I said, think about all the disagreements you have. In what percentage of those disagreements are you the one who's correct? And the average person says about two thirds of the time. <laughs> So the average person thinks that they're the one who's right when they disagree two thirds of the time. That shows that can't be true. I mean, I just can't. Mm -hmm. So it, it shows that we overestimate our views of reality. So you use the term ego skepticism. And all I really mean by that is we have to believe whatever we believe. I mean, we, we just believe it, but we can be more skeptical. We can be, be sort of more humble in our, grasp of reality, which takes away a lot of problems if you just don't dig in as deep. If you're a little more skeptical and don't always interpret what you think to be true as being true, don't take your interpretation of what just happened as the true story. It's always an interpretation based on inadequate evidence. So, so I, I do recommend that people sort of work toward greater 
well, now, now we call it intellectual humility. At that time, I mm. was calling it eco-skepticism. But just be a little less certain that everything that you think is true. Some of it is, but undoubtedly some of it isn't. And you can't tell the difference. So now, if you take that too far, you get kind of paralyzed. And you sort of say, well, I, I don't know that anything's true. That's not the point. You go ahead and act on your beliefs while still entertaining the possibility that your views are biased by your own self-perceptions and your own interpretations of the world. And, and when people do that, it reduces conflict. It reduces stress to some extent. You don't take as hard of a stand on a lot of issues. I mean, things you, you firmly believe, and of course, you still hold your ground. But I, I just recommend everybody be a little less certain than they, than they are. <laughs> and, and, and in this political climate that we've just come through, I mean, I think everybody, myself included, I try to do this to myself. Are you completely certain that every one of your beliefs is the right belief? And if the answer is yes, you're almost certainly wrong. <laughs> and I think mine are. I mean, every one of us does, of course. We wouldn't say to ourselves, well, I believe X, but I know X is wrong. That doesn't make any sense. So we always believe what we believe and we firmly believe it. But you have to hold out a little bit of humility that some of this can't be right. I can't be right all of the time. It just doesn't work that way. So that's what ego skepticism is. Skepticism is. Gotcha. Yeah. And that was uh, reminding me of another part of the book where you talk about the self's contribution to these uh, group dynamics that have led to like a lot of, you know, conflict and even war amongst, uh, you know, groups that are defined by big things like maybe geographic boundaries or perhaps even smaller things like language differences um, or just habits or customs. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But one thing that self-awareness allows us to do is we we figure out who we are and what groups we belong to. We, we form an identity and all of us have an identity. And it's just a natural consequence of thinking about ourselves and who we are and what pigeonholes in society we fit into. The problem is we sometimes reify that identity instead of it just being sort of a descriptor of a bunch of things we believe in or a bunch of characteristics we have, we take it as the central part of who we are as a person. And so we begin to divide the world up in terms of people's different identities. And we cling to our, our identity, whether it's a national or a political or religious or a gender or a racial identity, we cling to that. And we generally begin to think that our identity is better than other people's identities. You know, yeah, I, I, I'm in this profession and that's better than your profession. We, we, we are egotistical about, about our identities. So it does lead us to separate ourselves from other people. It leads us to derogate people who are different than us. And it fuels a lot of conflicts. To go back to politics for a moment, I saw a really interesting study from last summer where they measured people's political attitudes along liberal and conservative dimensions on a lot of different attitudes. And then they asked people, to what extent do you identify as a liberal or a conservative? And what was interesting is that people's attitudes, just the attitudes they had were in some ways not as important to their reactions to what's happening politically as their identification of which group they belong to. So it's the identity that drives an awful lot of problems and not just the beliefs. That if you didn't have the identity, and you and I have, let's say, you know, we disagree on some serious political issue. Yeah, disagreements are hard. 
But once we identify with that and say, well, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative, mm-hmm. or I'm a Democratic or Republican, then we get more entrenched and we have a harder time communicating. It's the identity that interferes with the communication, not just the disagreement is another way to say it. So there's another curse of the self where our ability to think about ourselves leads to an identity that then interferes with our relationships with other people and other groups. Yeah. And I think it can interfere with our ability to see, you know, things accurately. Um, I have an example of this. So I'm a liberal. I'm a pretty liberal person. Um, I always tell people when they ask me what my political affiliation is, is that I'm way more liberal than you are. That's normally what I say. <laughs> That's good. And That's good. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a, you know, a card carrying liberal this summer when there were protests against, um, you know, police violence against black people, I thought, okay, like that's a really good thing. People are speaking out about this. But then when I was listening to this other podcast, I listened to a lot, the Sam Harris podcast, he was mentioning that there was like maybe some um, contradiction or some duplicity about um, sort of liberal ideas about um, how protests taking place during the pandemic were okay, whereas other um, organizations or groups of people that didn't really fit into the liberal worldview um, were not okay. And so I started to rethink whether or not, you know, it was responsible or, you know, something like endorsable for people, millions of people to gather together in close contact during protests. Maybe they can do it safely. But I was watching like a YouTube video last night and it was um, like a conservative congressperson sort of grilling Dr. Fauci about this issue. And I think before I had um, listened to this other podcast, I would have stuck to my guns and been like, yeah, like, you know, protesting free speech, these are important issues. Uh, people should be doing it. But then I, I, I noticed that my feelings about it had softened a little bit. And um, I felt my ego also like somewhat um, impinged or hurt by the fact that maybe this conservative politician was saying something that was correct. Um, so <laughs> that's a great example. This. That's a great example. And, and that had more to do with your identity than it did the, the attitude topic that we're talking about in a way. I mean, yeah, no, we, we do that all the time. We absolutely do that all the time. Yeah. And I think the opposite can happen as well. This is less about like group identity or politics and more just about how sensitive our, at least my ego is to either losses or wins. I was in a bar several months ago and Piano Man that came on the song. And I was like, oh, Piano Man, I love this song. Me and my roommates used to sing Billy Joel all the time. And then my friend and the waitress were like, wait, this is Elton John. Elton John is the Piano Man. And they were so certain about it that I was like, okay, I guess I'm wrong. But then they Googled (laughs) it and we found out it was Billy Joel. And I remember feeling so good. Like my ego felt like it had been rewarded and petted and and nurtured. (laughs) and And I still feel good about it. So it's just amazing. How strong that feeling can be. (laughs) One thing that's useful to think about when we talk about our our egos, and there's a case where, yeah, you feel good. You you always want to go, yeah, you know, shake your fist. Yeah, I got that one right. Um, Our ego is to some extent an internalization of our, the image we want to present to other people. So, so when something like that happens, so you're right about the piano man. Yeah, I remember I, I saw Billy Joel in concert right after that album came out, even before he was famous. So yeah, I know what you're talking Thank about. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when you say, you know, it made my ego feel good. If you sort of translate what's really happening psychologically, it's that I showed other people that I'm competent. 
that I was smarter than they were, that I deserve sort of a certain amount of social respect. Now, we talk about it as the ego is something inside our own head, which it is. But the precipitating factor really has to do with the nature of your social connections and your image in other people's eyes. And I, I always want to bring this up because the self, the things we focus on when we're self-reflective, seems like it's all in our head, but it's often a mirror of our relationships with other people. And then when we dig in and we become ego defensive or we, our ego gets stroked by, you know, knowing Billy Joel did the piano man, that's really an internal manifestation of something that's actually a social event that in the big scheme of things throughout evolutionary history would have been advantageous. I showed other people that I'm competent. I showed other people that I can be trusted to have the right ideas. And so when we feel good or bad, when our ego is affected in a good or bad way, what that often is, it's an internal reflection of what's happening to our image in the social world. And those things are so tightly connected, they're almost impossible to completely separate. But when you think about it that way, then it, it focuses you on what the actual function of those good and bad ego feelings are. What's the function of ego defensiveness or, or ego glorification? And the functions are it's sort of is guiding us toward behaving in ways that increase our status and our image in other people's eyes, which to get along well in society you know, is important for everybody. It can obviously go overboard and people become too worried about their image. But, but I, I just wanted to bring up the fact that an awful lot of these self-related things are reflections of what's happening in our interpersonal lives. Mm -hmm. And all, of course, to the service of, you know, reproduction and, and uh, promoting our genes through the generations. In the long run, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, sure. I, I find it striking sometimes that, you know, we're here on planet Earth and we've got like jobs and podcasts and we're trying to make a life for ourselves. But it's all, I wouldn't say it's a sick joke, but we're really here just the whim of these in impersonal, you know, unconscious, you know, naturally selected evolutionary forces that are just trying to get us to survive and promote our genes. And yet we're kind of like the punchline of this bad joke. Like here you are on planet earth and you're, you think all these things, you think you want all these things, but really you're just like praying at the altar of this uncaring master called evolution. It, it seems strange to me. Yes. And you know, when, when Dawkins book came out in the seventies, the selfish gene, which was really the first expression, the clear expression of that idea you just expressed, uh, you know, for the public, it really created shockwaves when people realize that most of what I'm doing, I'm doing for the benefit of the propagation of my genes. And they're the things that are in control fundamentally about my behavior. Yeah, it is. It is like a sick joke sometimes, <laughs> which is all the more reason not to take it too terribly seriously to the extent that we can. You know, sometimes we, I realize that I'm taking something way too seriously. That's not that big of a deal. And particularly when you back off another level like you did and say, well, this is just kind of a sick joke. My genes are kind of pushing me around here. Yeah, I, I can't take this too seriously. Yeah, that is it is a good lesson to to look at it in that sort of silver lining kind of way to not take things um, so terribly seriously. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to ask you about some of the other things that you're working on. I know you're a, a blogger over at Psychology Today and, and also the editor maybe of a of a of another website. Can you tell me about some other projects that you might be working on? I do blog irregularly for psychologytoday.com uh, very much on these issues. Uh, the theme of that blog is toward a less egoic world. 
And all that really means uh, e egoism is just excessive self-preoccupation. And I do feel like we create so many problems for ourselves and society when we're too self-preoccupied that those, those blogs on psychologytoday.com are along that theme. So any of your listeners who are intrigued by some of this, uh, you know, will find some of those ideas about the curse of the self and how to deal with it in my blog on psychologytoday.com. I am just finishing a two-year term as the editor of Character and Context which is the blog for the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, where researchers in personality and social psychology write short blogs about their recent research that might be of interest to the, to the general public. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. We've, in the last two years, have published 300 blogs about the, all kinds of topics in personality and social psychology. And uh, wow. luckily that ends here in a month because <laughs> it has been daunting to, to keep up with those things. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, those, those have been taking some of my time. In terms of other things that I'm doing, I'm just wrapping up a number of projects. I retired a year and a half ago from Duke. That's why I'm a professor emeritus, as you were trying to learn, trying to pronounce emeritus yeah. at the beginning. <laughs> I practiced it before the podcast. I still got it wrong. <laughs> and uh, and then, then I have, I, I want to write a book called Toward a Less Egoic World, which is sort of the applied side of the curse of the self. Yeah, we know the self is a curse. We know it undermines the quality of our own lives and our own heads and our quality of our lives with other people and society in general. Well, what do we do about it? How do we sort of rein that in at a societal level so, so that we don't let it get out of control? And I'm never arguing that people shouldn't look out for themselves. We're designed to be focused on ourselves. You have to be. Um, the question is, are, have we gone overboard? And that's what the curse of the self argues. And this book on toward a less egoic world that I've just started um, is going to try to sort of sort out how do, how do we roll that back to a more healthy level for all of us? Cool. Yeah, I look forward to reading it. Um, another question here. I, I actually probably could have just Googled this, but the front cover has this sort of interesting painting of, uh, I guess it's a guy and maybe his analog. Maybe that's what it is, kind of solemnly looking at the the reader do you, can you tell me what the painting is here? i i don't remember the guy's name at the time that was published i did look it up because i thought it was a cool piece of art uh they had a different cover design originally and i i saw that on the web and referred the uh, publisher to it yeah uh, for for your listeners it's a guy looking at a bust of himself and so it has this reflective self-reflective kind of message to it and it's a little somber looking um you know with dark colors but yeah, it just seemed to be like the analog of a person who was self-reflecting on their own likeness in the form of a bust. Yeah, I think it makes sense because the guy looks pretty miserable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Leary. It's been great reading this book. Um, yeah, especially the evolutionarily historical stuff. Um, I don't know, just some of it is just so fun to play around with those ideas of how we got here and how um, our ancestors became who they are. So I, I really appreciate, you know, you taking the time to, to sit and talk with me and the listeners today. I appreciate you inviting me. Good luck to you. Appreciate it.